0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Tamara Plakins Thornton about her biography of the American savant and businessman Nathaniel Bowditch, entitled Nathaniel Bowditch and the Power of Numbers, How a 19th Century Man of Business, Science, and the Sea Changed American Life. Tamara, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a professor of history at the State University of New York, Buffalo, but I'm originally a New Englander, like Nathaniel Bowditch. I uh, grew up in Connecticut. I went to Harvard for my bachelor's in history of science, actually, and then I got my Ph.D. in American Studies at Yale.
0: What led you to Bowditch as a subject?
1: Well, if you have any New Englanders in your audience, they may understand the pull of that region. And my first book was on the New England elite, and they caught my interest. I I should make it very clear. I do not descend from that crowd, but they are fascinating to me. So after I uh, finished my second book, I moved on to another project, and I found myself pulled back to understanding these people. I wanted to do it through the lens of an individual, Um, and I ran across Nathaniel Bowditch, who'd kind of been on my radar screen, but very much on the edge. And what originally fascinated me about him was that he had so many different careers. He had a career in science, he had a career in navigation, he had a career in business, and I was interested to understand how one puts together those three careers, or what, what sort of person is it who does that? What kind of world is it where those kinds of things fit together? And as I looked into him more, I discovered that the answers to those questions were pretty interesting uh, and taught us something new about that world. I also have to say I was drawn to the fact that nobody had really done this man before, and I'm the sort of historian who likes uh, moving into virgin territory.
0: You mentioned the uh, uh, subject matter that you've previously studied, which is the New England elite, and that is one of the threads that comes across in your book is Bowditch's, uh interrelationship with that class in uh, early American society. And yet, as you explained early at the beginning of the book, he is not originally a member of that class, that he comes from a slightly different background, and that, in a sense, his family, his uh, his parents are undergoing sort of a downward trajectory as when he's a child.
1: They are undergoing a downward trajectory, but the important thing in Salem, Massachusetts, in the 1770s when he's born, is not where you're headed, so much as where you came from. And if you came from generations back, people who counted, then chances are you continue to have links with people in town who are powerful and eminent and can give you a helping hand. doesn't matter if you're poor, if you have a well-off relative, and that well-off relative in the world of the 18th century, is going to take notice of you, is not going to feel above you, is going to think, okay, this is somebody I have a tie to and to whom I'm going to uh, help in some way, particularly if, like the boy Nathaniel Bowditch, you seem to show some talent. So it's a kind of process of sponsored mobility, and that's, that's really what happens to Nathaniel Bowditch.
0: Did he by any chance have greater opportunities because his father, uh, uh, Habakkuk, uh, fell into poverty uh, because he was on charity? Did that, in a sense, open more doors to him than if his uh, parents had been able to support him to a certain degree?
1: Oh, I wouldn't say that. I'd say if If both of his parents had been well off, uh, they probably would have looked for him to make the same kinds of contacts that he ultimately did. So he got an apprenticeship in a chandlery, which is a a type of shop that specializes in stocking ocean-going vessels with just about everything they need. Uh, so he's there, uh, and that's a very good start in maritime business. That's the kind of thing they would have wanted him to do. They probably would have been interested in having him uh, get to know uh, the man who was, at that point, the richest man in America, Elias Haskett Derby, uh, who was a merchant and also happened to be a relative, distant relative, but hey, any relative is what counts. So they probably would have encouraged that relationship. Well, that relationship formed anyway. Derby took notice of him, plucked uh, Bowditch out of that uh, clerkship, that chandlery clerkship, and put him on one of his ocean-going vessels. Uh, and that was really the beginning of uh, Bowditch's accumulation of at least some level of wealth. So his parents, uh, his mother, watching from heaven, uh, his father watching from a bit of a drunken stupor, if how things proceeded uh, with Boutage, it's, it's what they would have hoped for.
0: Now, you've talked about how his apprenticeship is the beginning of his path to gaining wealth. He doesn't embark upon that path with much of an education, does he?
1: Uh, he has a fairly average education for the time, when he starts off as an apprentice, and he's only 12, 13, 14, something like that when he starts off as an apprentice. And he's had a basic common school education. For most people, that's, in fact, where it would have ended. And the education he gets in the chandlery, where he, he takes certain types of night courses, it, that's actually exactly the sort of education that would fit him for a career in commerce. So he took courses in navigation, which is a highly mathematical subject. He took courses in surveying, also mathematical. He took courses in bookkeeping. He took courses in commercial arithmetic. This is exactly the kind of stuff you want to know for this particular economy. And it's a little bit like learning programming or at least keyboarding in today's economy. Uh, in that economy the key to making it was somehow tapping into oceanic trade, global trade, uh, and in, in Salem, it's trade into the Indian and Pacific Oceans. So having that kind of technical mathematical knowledge of bookkeeping, arithmetic, surveying, navigation, that's exactly what you'd want. A college education in this period was not really the path to that kind of career. It would lead you into a gentleman status. You'd have your Latin and Greek, uh, and it would fit you for being a lawyer, let's say, a statesman, certainly a gentleman. But if you wanted to get into what passed for the modern economy in late 18th century New England, you needed to know exactly the kind of stuff that Bowditch was learning in his teen.
0: One of the things that struck me about this period of life was how fortuitous it was for him that he lived in Salem when he did, because as you describe it, Salem is going through this brief renaissance where where they emerge as a major merchant port for the New Republic.
1: Yeah, it's quite amazing. The whole place is 5,000 people. 300 acres of land. This is a little place, and yet so many of the people, hundreds of the men in that town would have gone on some kind of ocean-going vessel. Now, a lot of them might have gone no further than the Caribbean, but increasingly a lot of them are going to Europe. They're going... Uh, into the Indian Ocean, uh, they're going to India, various islands in the Indian Ocean, the Philippines, Sumatra, it's quite incredible that these people who come from what is really a tiny little place have a glimpse, a, glimpse, a real experience of the wide, wide world at a, at a time when very few people do. You go a few miles inland and these people really know pretty much just what's going on around them. But along the coast, Where you have these seaports, there's a possibility of knowing more. And Salemites are, in fact, very cosmopolitan.
0: So where does Boatich go on his voyages?
1: Well, his very first voyage takes him to an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean called Réunion. Uh, It's kind of near Mauritius, but even that doesn't ring much of a bell. Uh, and Reunion hardly rings a bell today. Uh, if you've heard of it today, it's probably because some of the wreckage from that Malaysian airliner that disappeared mysteriously washed up on its shores a couple years ago. So there's a little blip for Reunion, uh, and then it disappears into the midst of time again. So uh, there's Bowditch going across the Atlantic Ocean and then around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, so around Africa into the ocean to this little dot in the middle of the Indian Ocean in order to buy coffee. That's, that's what the vessel is doing there. Uh, that's his first voyage. After that, he goes to the Philippines. Uh, he goes to Indonesia. Uh, he goes to, uh, Portugal and, uh, Madeira. Um, so he goes a lot of very exotic places, particularly for somebody who'd never been outside of Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island until the day he stepped foot on a vessel at the age of 21.
0: What were some of the roles that he performed on these voyages, and how did he profit from them?
1: Well, he starts off as a paperwork guy, uh, and he eventually moves up in the paperwork hierarchy to become what's called a supercargo, which is basically the business agent of a vessel. These are complicated uh, transactions, and you're going to parts of the world where you really don't know what's up. I mean, when this vessel goes to Philippines, the Philippines, it's really the first American vessel in Manila. They don't know what to buy, deal with. They don't know the languages. People are Chinese. They're Malay. They're Filipino. Uh, so Bowditch's job is to handle the business end but he'd also had training in navigation. He's really good in navigation, and although it's not his official job, at least on his first voyage to do navigation, that's really the job of the captain and the first mate. He kind of second guesses them by doing the navigation anyway, and ultimately he becomes a supercargo and a mate, so he uh, is working on the business end as well as the navigation end, uh, in his last voyage, at the very beginning of the 19th century, he's captain of the vessel. But from everything we know, he's not actually that good at seamanship, you know, which sail to raise and lower, that kind of thing. So he tells his first mate, you take care of that. I'm I'm going to be doing some other stuff, his mathematics. You take care of that. Call me in an emergency. I'll take care of the navigation. I'll take care of the business. Uh, but otherwise... You, you take care of that. So he performs multiple jobs on these
0: vessels. As you explained, that apprenticeship in that time at sea really plays into his first major uh, uh, intellectual achievement, which is the American Practical Navigator. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about this book and its genesis and why it's so important not just to uh, – uh, boutage, but also to really the uh, whole idea of navigation itself.
1: Right. So this is a very thick book. Okay, <laughs> if you're holding it, it's heavy. You have to really, you know, use your entire fist to hold this thing. The New American Practical Navigator. It has a lot of stuff in it. It's a it's a basic how to book for everything. How to uh, figure out marine insurance. Uh, how to survey, a port, all this kind of stuff. But most of it consists of table after table after table of numbers. And these are numbers for navigating your vessel, figuring out the latitude and the longitude. And you need this book. You take these numbers and you plug them into various formulae to figure out where you are. So um, these numbers are not new, they're based on mathematical constants, I mean, some of them are tables of logarithms, for example, uh, takes me back to my nightmare of algebra in high school, <laughs> and some are based on astronomical constants, the position of uh, various celestial bodies. So these are, these numbers are not new. They can't be new, right? We wouldn't trust a book that came out and said, well, actually 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4. I figured out that it actually equals 4.38. Not good. So what, uh, Bowditch was doing was not original, and his new American Practical Navigator was actually based on a book by an Englishman, uh, the also called, or similarly called the new Practical Navigator that Americans had used for several decades. What Bowditch did was take this book and recalculate all of those numbers. And we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of numbers. And each number is requires very complex, lengthy calculations, no calculators, no computers, nothing. Uh, And he finds errors. Bowditch finds errors in the old English book. And he basically fixes the old English book and reissues it, or it is reissued by his publisher in Newburyport, Massachusetts, under Bowditch's name. Uh, And it's partly because it's so comprehensive, but mainly because it's so accurate. Uh, Americans uh, just go for this. Uh, There are other rivals out there at the beginning when Bowditch first publishes this in 1802, but within 10, 15 years, the other rivals have disappeared, at least in the United States. Um, Bowditch does not become a worldwide sensation. I mean Bowditch the book, because it's known by its author's name in the 19th century, but it does become an American maritime bestseller. So anybody... uh, who is navigating a naval or commercial vessel in 19th century America, 20th century America, knows this book. I've given talks about this book, and I've had retired Coast Guard officers and naval officers come up to me and said, oh, yes, I got my bowditch in 1953. It was my Bible, all this kind of stuff. (laughs) So uh, it was very revised bowditch uh, by that time because there are new methods of navigation now, but nevertheless, um, that name goes on forever.
0: One of the aspects of the book that you discuss is this very fascinating dimension of American pride. How you have Bowditch on one hand as this impertinent American who is uh, coming up with these tables, and he's going up against these very esteemed English uh, 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 notables who have come up with these books. And there, there seems to be this undercurrent of pride that Americans this young republic which uh, uh, for whom the revolution was a living memory was already beginning to one-up their, their, their uh, former colonial masters.
1: Well, they certainly were hoping for that, because the truth is, in the beginning of the 1800s, although Americans like to say, oh, we will now have a cultural flowering now that we are a free and independent nation, they were looking very hard for any signs of that. Uh, and... Uh, the British in particular were very happy to remind Americans how culturally backward they were. Uh, there was a very famous essay written in a British periodical in 1820 where the author said, who in the four corners of the earth reads an American book uh, or goes to see an American play? Uh, where is the American mathematician or scientist and so on? Making fun of us, really, uh, or at any rate, Deriding our supposed greatness. And it just irked Americans no end because they knew there was real truth in that. We hadn't yet produced our Shakespeare or our Isaac Newton. So along comes Nathaniel Bowditch, he produces something that yeah, it's it's damn useful. Um is it Isaac Newton? No, it is not. Uh but Americans like to tout it as a sign of our cultural greatness.
0: Now, you mentioned that he goes on uh, about five cruises, uh, and he uh, ends his, uh, his time at sea at a fairly young age. What does he then do for a living?
1: Well, he goes to work as the executive of a marine insurance company uh, in Salem, that's the first thing he does, and really, it involves a good deal more than just insuring vessels. It's in, it's really the financial industry of the day. It in, it also involves investing money. Um, so it, it's a he becomes part of the financial sector, and he starts that in 1804 in Salem uh, and does that until 1823 when he takes another post in Boston for another financial institution, but this one a financial giant, what actually very quickly becomes the largest financial institution in New England, which is saying something, because New England in the 1820s is in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. So he becomes a financial executive and expert. Both of these companies that he worked for have the name insurance in their name, but it actually goes way beyond insurance, particularly for the Boston company, uh, where insurance is the smallest part of the business. Really what's involved are trusts and investments. That doesn't sound like anything new today, but it was very new in 1823. Something like a trust, a trust company, that was very new. So he was a he was in a not only an important uh, position, but in a position of real innovation.
0: As you point out, one of the aspects of the use of the trust that uh, he really plays a critical role in, and this is something that you know, might easily be overlooked, is that this helps to preserve a lot of the fortunes that are being built up uh, in New England during this time.
1: Right. You put uh, money into a family trust. Uh, you have provisions in it to make certain that the beneficiaries don't blow the money, right? Spend thrift trust. But at the same time, that money is plowed into enterprises that those very same families are establishing. Things like the mills in Lowell and Lawrence and Nashua. So it's a win-win situation. Uh, so that's what he's involved in, trust. Before this time, uh, first of all, there were no trust companies like this that pooled lots of families' wealth. And in addition, um, although there were trustees, they uh, kind of flew under the legal radar. And trustees were uh, not fly-by-night characters, but let's just say the rules governing what they did were very lax. Uh, so there were some people who would basically steal money from the beneficiaries, but other people would just kind of sit on the money. They felt no responsibility for making it grow. They pooled their money with uh, the trust money, and that was standard operating procedure. What what would shock us today was standard then, that kind of laxity um, and lack of system. Uh, that you know that was not about just personality he believed very powerfully in system so when he got into the financial world he brought that systematic temperament to everything he did
0: that systematic uh, temperament that you just uh, mentioned is really key to this point that you make in the book which is that Bowditch is more than just a businessman or a financier or even a mathematician, but he's a person who really creates so much of business practice as as we came to know it uh, in the Western world in some respects.
1: Yes, as we come to recognize it as modern life. Um you know, dealing with an impersonal bureaucracy, right? Uh calling visa and encountering the phone tree. Press one for this, press two for that, uh dealing with rules that cannot be bent, uh inflexible deadlines, uh dealing with becoming a number, uh dealing with numbering systems, knowing your social by heart, all of that kind of stuff that we just consider as part and parcel of modern life, it didn't just drop out of the sky. It's not the way it always worked. Uh, Somebody had to invent it. Uh, People had to invent it. Now, Bowditch was hardly the only one. Such a thing would be impossible. But he was very influential in establishing impersonal procedures, cataloging systems, numbering systems. Bowditch never... Ran into a system that he didn't like, and he created a fair number. So, uh, just to bring that alive a little bit more, if you if you go to a, a an office uh, in the early 19th century, um, you won't find any filing cabinets or files or paper clips, and these are all creatures of the late 1800s. When people want to store documents, they put them in boxes. Uh, and eventually or they'll put them on a spindle on a desk. Um, eventually, you have to store them somewhere. You put those boxes away. Well, how do you find old documents? Well, you kind of look through stuff. Maybe they're arranged chronologically, but maybe not. Okay, so there really is no organizational system. Um, and if you look at those documents, uh, it's a mix. Often in the same document, you'll find a mix of personal news and business discussion. So the the rules of business that we business conduct that we have today didn't apply then. Bowditch comes in particularly by the eighteen twenties, and he's going to change this kind of thing. Now he doesn't invent the file cabinet, uh, but what he does do um, is, for example, in the mortgage business uh, that he runs, he tells his agents that he wants every loan numbered. And he wants every loan referred to by its number, and he wants every letter to deal with only one number, not multiple, because he wants that number written on the envelope, and then so that he can then bundle all the envelopes with the same number together. So it's an early filing system, and it kind of blew people away. They hadn't seen anything like this. Um, he wants personal business and business-business separated. Uh, These were new rules. They really come out of Bauditch's fascination with uh, system and rules that uh, are never broken. And, of course, he knew rules that are never broken. You look up in the sky, right? We just went through a, a solar eclipse that had been predicted ages ago. How could we be so certain? because the solar system runs according to rules that are never broken. And that's really what Bowditch wanted to do. He wanted to turn every company, every institution he ran into, into a miniature solar system that would run with this kind of rule-bound regularity. And to do that, you're going to have to change the way you conduct business. Now we take it for granted. But then it raised more than a few eyebrows.
0: One of the things I found especially surprising about that part of your book was not the resistance that he sometimes encountered to this, but how quickly so many people accepted the trade-off that yes, they, it wouldn't just be uh, exclusively about personal connections or, uh, or, or, or or handshake deals, but that uh, there was a trade-off and that the elites would benefit from the system in the long run. They seem to appreciate that uh, surprisingly quickly.
1: Yeah, they do, uh, for a couple of reasons, I think. Uh, One is, you know, I mentioned that this pooling of family wealth is new. Well, you want to make sure that you have somebody who's even-handed, you know, who's not favoring the Lowells over the Cabotts or the Cabotts over the Lees. Um, A person who believes in rule-bound regularity, it looks like he's going to be impartial. Okay, that's a good thing. So maybe if I'm a Lee or a Cabot or a Lowell, I'll put my money in this after all. Uh, they hired this guy because of his reputation as a mathematician and somebody who never bent. They liked that. So that's one reason. Another reason is uh, this same group of people who established this corporation, they're the ones who are establishing the textile mills. And um, and also loaning money out to farmers elsewhere in the state. And they're getting some political heat. You know, their labor practices are not so great. <laughs> the way they treat farmers elsewhere, uh, farmers are complaining about it. So they're getting a lot of heat, including political heat. Um, and it's not a bad thing to have somebody running your company Who describes your company as completely impartial in its operations and who is able to say, hey, look, if I'm enforcing this rule with you, I'm also enforcing it, uh, with all the rich people in Boston. I'm not, you know, you may just be a common farmer, but you come under the same rules as Daniel Webster. Uh, and I'm an impartial person, this company is running according to fixed rules that are, you know, like the laws of physics, they apply to everybody. That can remove some of the political heat. Of course, behind the scenes, uh, there is still uh, a network of families. It's different from what, um, the, from the way it worked in Bowditch's youth. Uh, in Bowditch's youth, I mean, he was a not a he was from a family that was downwardly mobile, but the richest man in America reached down to lend him a hand. That wouldn't happen by the 1820s and 30s. Instead, uh, the rich people reach across, not down. Okay, They reach across to other families who are in their social crowd. So are things impartial? Well, of course not. Um, You know, if you want to invest your money in this company that Bowditch is running, you have to be somebody to begin with. If you want to buy stock in that company, you have to be somebody. Those are the rules of the company. So uh, on the outside, it looks very impartial. On the inside, of course, there are advantages. You know, membership has its advantages.
0: (laughs) You described this incredibly active business career, and one that's incredibly lucrative for Bowditch, but you also... This isn't the only thing he's doing during this period of his life, is it?
1: No, it's not. Um, First, I should say he never becomes super rich. He becomes well-off, he's (coughs) prosperous, he has a a good salary, um, even beyond that, he has a very good sideline going as a trustee. Okay, So he, he does well, but um, he doesn't become the richest man in America by a long shot. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, even while he's running this company, uh, both companies really, he's doing his science and mathematics in the early morning. Um, and what he's interested in is not navigation. He knows this is, he describes that as a merely practical manual. And he's right. Uh, he's interested in the latest, cutting-edge scientific developments of the day, which are certainly not coming out of the United States. They're not coming out of Britain. They're coming out of France. And he uh, learns of these developments in uh, quantitative physical sciences and in calculus. Uh, Pierre de Laplace is the big name here. He learns of these. Uh, he teaches himself French. He teaches himself the new style uh calculus in order to master this stuff it's unknown in the united states it's virtually unknown in britain Um, he wants to translate laplace's master work which is a kind of synthesis of cutting-edge 18th century physical sciences he wants to translate this multi-volume work, and that's what he spends his time doing, it, translating it and annotating it. And the annotations um, are massive. They explain what Laplace is talking about for people who have backgrounds similar to Bowditch's. Uh They know something, but they have a whole lot left to learn. So that's what he spends his time doing, working on this Laplace. Translation and annotation. That's what he does in the morning.
0: You describe how he views this as the effort that's really going to make his name as an intellectual, as a, uh, as a man of science. And you fold this into this very interesting discussion of this rising reputation that Bowditch has, not just among this transatlantic scientific community but within the United States as well, how he, the, the only analogy I can think of is, is with Benjamin Franklin. And while he doesn't have quite that same stature in, uh, in, in the public imagination, he really does become this very famous, very prominent uh, byword for uh, intellectual genius.
1: He does. I mean, in some ways he becomes more famous than Franklin. Uh, the way we'll say, well, you don't have to be an Einstein to know this. People will say, well, you don't have to be Bowditch to know this. So, yeah, people know Bowditch, and they consider him a kind of mathematical genius, which he wasn't. He was just really, really good at mathematics, but there was nothing original about his mathematical thinking. Uh, in Europe, um, yeah, they'd heard of him. Um, here, he's not like Franklin, because Franklin, Europeans had a great deal of respect for As an original scientist, Europeans didn't really think uh, that Bowditch had originality. Um, They sniffed that out in him. Uh, Bowditch ultimately knew that about himself as well. They respected that he did this. They were kind of amazed that an American, of all people, did it. Kind of like a circus dog doing tricks. You know what they say, the wonder if they can do it at all, walking <laughs> on two legs. So that's that's the way they look at him. Um, and uh, he, he does write a couple of things other than the Laplace that that they take some interest in, his work on meteors, for example, because nobody knew what meteors were, so this is an open field. Any, you know, they'll, they'll listen to anybody, even an American. Uh, but the Laplace, they congratulate him Um and he's thrilled with that when he gets their letters of congratulation, uh, He's very carefully sent them all copies of the book because they certainly wouldn't think to look for an American to do this. They're not going to run across the book in their bookstores in Paris or Genoa or London. So he's got to send them the books. Uh, he sends them the books. They send congratulations. He loves it. Americans go wild. Uh, they say, "Look at this!" Europeans think the world of our own Nathaniel Bowditch. He's the American Newton, but Americans are fooling themselves here.
0: It does, though, play back into uh, what you were talking about earlier with his reputation relative to the uh, to the his book, "The uh, American Practical Navigator," about how Americans really are eager to you know, him into their bosom because he demonstrates how America is indeed a maturing nation who can produce its own, uh, you know, group of, of, of extremely accomplished intellectuals.
1: That's right. I mean, at, at one point in the 18-teens, one of his kind of scientific buddies who'd been born uh, in London but becomes an American uh, says to him, you know, it's so galling the way uh, the Brits look down on us, You have to do something about it. Here's what you have to do. You have to publish a bunch of articles that are going to find mistakes in their work. Uh, just the, the fact of Americans publishing good stuff, that's not going to do any good. But if we find weaknesses in their work now, then we can say, gotcha. And actually, Bowditch, in the late teens, does publish a bunch of articles like that. He finds really minor things. Uh, he finds small mathematical errors. He even finds a mathematical error in, in Isaac Newton. Uh, and... Um, you know, Americans think, aha, gotcha. But it's a little bit like finding a typo in Shakespeare. It doesn't really do anything <laughs> to the corpus of European science. But it does make Americans feel better. Um, and then the same uh, Englishman turned American and his uh, brothers actually start working to get Boudic it- some European honors because you need the seal of approval you know you have to have that stamp and in particular you need uh, honorary membership in the big European scientific societies the Royal Society of London that's the really big one so behind the scenes they you know they know somebody who knows somebody they go and they talk to the head of the Royal Society they do this and they drum up an honorary membership for him. It's very clear. We have the correspondence. This is not a conspiracy theory. It's for real. Okay. His friends uh, bring uh, Bowditch to the attention of the Royal Society. They lobby on his behalf, and yes, he does get um, a, an honorary fellowship in the Royal Society. And again, it's headline news all over the United States.
0: Was it his scientific stature or was it his business background that brought him into uh, a, the role of being a uh, participant in the uh, governance of Harvard? Or was it some combination of the two?
1: It is hard to separate because his, his work as a scientist established a reputation, really an aura, of a person of impartiality and of system. Uh, that impartiality and system worked itself out in the Boston business world and that's where he made a lot of contacts. Uh But his reputation as a scientist and mathematician was key. So he's brought in uh, to what's called the Harvard Corporation, which is a, a small group of men who are the governing board. They make all the important decisions. And in the late 1820s, Harvard was Let's just say it wasn't then what it is now. It wasn't <laughs> then what it is now academically, uh, financially, administratively, nothing. Um, and uh, Bowditch comes onto this corporation, and he's pretty shocked at the way things are run. Again, it's kind of like that early 19th century office of, I described to you that, by our terms, is chaotic. So he finds a kind of chaos there. Uh, you know, there are no notes of the corporation meetings other than what the president may have written down in shorthand on little scraps of paper that are stored with all kinds of other things in a trunk somewhere under some bed. Uh, the, the books are a complete mess. Bills haven't been paid or they've been paid multiple times. All sorts of things are problematic. Uh, the president mixes his own finances with the college finances, not because he's corrupt, but because that's the way things are done. And he makes his own decisions about how to spend that money. A poor boy comes into his office here, takes some money. It doesn't run like a little solar system. Uh, and this just gets under Bowditch's skin. And if I haven't made clear before that this is a very... Peppery, irritable character. Let me make that clear now. <laughs> and nothing irritated Bowditch more than chaos. You know, his whole watchword is number and system, number and system. So chaos just drives him around the bend. And he decides he's got to clean this place up. And he does so very tactlessly, but very successfully. Is known now for the size of its endowment, for example, huge endowment. Well, with the way things were being run in the before picture, we certainly wouldn't have that kind of Harvard endowment today. Um, it's largely because what Harvard, what what Bowditch and his allies on the corporation were up to, that Harvard was able to really turn over a new leaf administratively, not academically, but administratively and financially um, in order to begin building that endowment. And, of course, not coincidentally, a lot of those Harvard monies end up in, guess what, the corporation that Bowditch was running.
0: Hmm. How was he remembered uh, upon his death?
1: Well, he was remembered as a self-made man largely. That's one way. Um, Of course, he wasn't really self-made. He wouldn't have been able to do any of what he did, Uh, his career at sea, uh, his access to uh, the world of learning at the local gentleman's library in Salem, Massachusetts, which was a private library he was given access to. He would never have been able to do any of that if he weren't related to the right people and knew the right people who sponsored him. The talent was also there. It's a very significant part of his rise, but so were those kinds of contacts. So he was not self-made. He was largely self-taught. I'll give him that. Self-made, no. But by the time he died in 1838, the self-made man had become the model for middle-class Americans, which meant at the time the model for Americans. Uh, By this time, Bowditch was a member of the Boston elite, which was a little bit more than a little bit self-conscious about being an elite, you know, because wait a minute, aren't we living in a republic? You know, we don't have kings and queens anymore. So the way to justify your elite status is to say, well, we're really self-made just like anybody else. Or at any rate, we let in self-made people. So there was a lot of remembering him as self-made. That wasn't particularly accurate. Um, He was also remembered as a man with many hats. That was accurate, you know, as a navigator, as a scientist, as a businessman, as a family man, Um, and that was celebrated as a person who, um, we might call it work-life balance. (laughs) Uh, He was admired for that, or the balance between intellect and action. People admired him for that. Um, Over the decades, a lot of those hats disappeared. Uh, He really... uh, ultimately by the 20th century, became remembered only as the navigator. Uh, So um, a lot of what I've done in this book is to uh, restore the many facets of his career, careers, and his personality.
0: Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yeah, I'm working on another intersection of, uh, mathematical science and broader world views. Uh, so what I'm looking at are globes, uh, celestial and terrestrial globes and what impact they may have had on thinking globally, global thinking. Uh, globes then were not what they are now. They came in pairs and they were calculating tools. Uh, They were not just spherical maps, and they required, uh, again, a certain kind of mathematical training, Uh, but they gave you a kind of hands-on experience of imagining the other side of the globe, quite literally, uh, and of manipulating that globe toward your own ends, uh, that others, I uh, did not have access to, and I can't help but think that that makes you think differently about how you relate to people who live in other places on the globe and how you might trade with them as well. So I'm looking at globes and globalism.
0: Well, it sounds like a fascinating uh, collection of... Uh, uh- yeah,
1: it was It's a blast. I was just at the American Philosophical Society that owns some 18th century globes. Uh, We went into the basement and I said, um, we've got to work these things the way people did in the 1700s. Uh, There's something called the use of the globes, which was a whole uh, set of physical manipulations accompanied by uh, calculations, uh, time-space calculations. I couldn't make, you know... I couldn't understand what these Globes manuals were all about, and I knew I actually had to do it in order to figure it out. So the curators went with me. Uh, we worked on them. Um, it was really fascinating and very enlightening. Wow. So that's what I'm working on now.
0: Well, I look forward to reading that book. <laughs> tomorrow. at Thornton, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks.